Coming up next, Sabrina Artel with Trailer Talk. Stay tuned. We take a sojourn through the musical world of Jean Sibelius on our next New York Philharmonic broadcast. This is Alec Baldwin. Please join me for a program that will include Finlandia, the Violin Concerto, and the Second Symphony. Leonard Bernstein, Zubin Mehta, Lauren Mazel, and Sir Thomas Beecham will all conduct the New York Philharmonic this week. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. My guest is Elizabeth Streb. She has the Streb Lab for Action Mechanics in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and asks, what story can movement tell best? We're speaking about her book, How to Become an Extreme Action Hero. And Elizabeth Streb speaks about the participatory experience of movement. She is interested in an action form that can reach the masses. SLAM founder and choreographer and action architect Elizabeth Streb was awarded the MacArthur Genius Award in 1999 for her innovations and experiments in movement. I am with Elizabeth Streb. We are at the NoHo Star on Lafayette in New York City, and um, it is just absolutely exciting for me to speak with you. I have so many questions, and I don't even know really if I can keep up with the amount of ideas and the parts of your lives that you have shared with us in your book. This is called Streb, How to Become an Extreme Action Hero. It's published by the Feminist Press and has a foreword by Anna Devere Smith and an introduction by Peggy Phelan. So I was up, I have to admit, all night long just going through this book and piecing together the experiments that you have been doing with movement. And I want to begin with how are you at this juncture when you say movement or that you are an action architect and that the dancers are actually the engineers right of these performances because you're shifting the language we even use around ideas of dance and what movement is i think to give us some framework as we plunge into this conversation would be really wonderful well hi sabrina i'm enormously thrilled to be here talking with you this morning uh, about the book and just about life and just about movement. In my investigations of movement over the last 25 years, I've been searching for what is true about it. And I, I really haven't reached any hard and fast conclusions. And my dialectic has been certainly against the rubrics of ballet and modern dance, since that's a field I have been ensconced in for the last amount of time. Um, it isn't that I'm criticizing them. I'm just using it almost as a... Um, battering around uh, board so that I'm able to you know, understand what it is I'm doing different from what they have been doing. And for me, action really needs to be contended with on a completely different level. For instance, 
the field of dance uses music as a structure. You know, I've always, always disagreed with that. It's music is the true enemy of dance because the um, confines of oral rule systems simply do not um, treat movement authentically. So what we try to do is figure out what are the causal rules of putting one physical move done by a human being next to another physical move, perhaps done by the same human being or another human being, in time, time and space. So what is it then about that oral thing? So music with dance, as you say, music is the true enemy of dance. So meaning that it creates what? Like what happens to movement if it's being in some way either merged or even dictated to by, let's say, music? And then that would take us in also to ballet. As you say, your ballet would be what? Kind of your origins, would you say, of your what you thought of as dance when you were quite young or what kind of becomes this super example of dance for people at large, would you say? And is that why it becomes the kind of the, the frame that you're bouncing against? Well, for the first part of your question, the, what organizing movement in musical terms does is uh, you're, you know, let's say you're counting. M- many, many choreographers count to be able to stay at the spot in the music they want that move to occur within. And that counting is a very intellectual process. And if you've ever, when I first took a dance class, which wasn't until I was 17, that's when I started dancing, um, I was told to count for this particular phrase of movement. And I was thinking, wow, that's strange. When I was speeding down a ski slope, I didn't count. Or when I was flying on my motorcycle or crashing, you don't count. And I immediately decided I was never going to do that. So I estimated or I gauged how long each move should take. In physical terms, not in temporal terms. So if they're saying they have a four-four count, one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, you know, etc. I'm like going, well, why do they think that set of moves fits in that? And so what ended up happening is the body, the dancer, is controlling the movement so that it will fit properly within that temporal musical structure. And for me, movement isn't real. Essentially, the bottom line is authentic motion or real moves cannot be controlled. A real move is something that you're agreeing to participate in, but it's out of control. It's out of the region of your volition. Would you say then that if real movement is something that's out of control, right? So it's it's based on forces, which I want to talk to you about, that surround us, then is it about something outside of the body or would you say beyond the body is the body simply a sort of container then or how would you describe the relationship that you have with the work that you do at this streb action lab is it because there seems to be there's almost a paradox really then isn't there between the body that is doing things and that you're experimenting with with your dancers and going beyond it into something else. When you realize that, um, you know, the body itself, these forces that I'm speaking about are often, uh, you know, described as rebound, impact, centripetal force, adhesion. Um, that happens in nature. You know, it happens in water. That happens, you know, when thing, a big tree falls down. That happens when um, humans slip on a banana peel. But there's also internal forces because we have chemistry. Our, we, have, we have neurons. We have, you know, our, our whole system internally and biologically is a huge cauldron of chemical alchemy. I just take the body for granted, except for the caveat that I believe the body, there's nothing the human body can't do. 
It's just things we haven't thought of. And we harness those forces so that we will be able to, you know, ride the wave, as it were, you know, or, or, or make a move that's theatrical on stage that will be tantamount to a guy sitting on the back of a bull for eight seconds, as in bull riding. We try and figure out, can we manufacture enough force and survive that force on stage? in our contraptions, because we use action machines that also generate forces, um, so that the audience will really notice the action and not the body. I don't want my movement to be so body-centric. You know, when they say, well, what's the big deal? For me, the big deal, phenomenologically, is that I ultimately, the audience, ultimately the question is, you know, what can movement, what story can movement tell best? And it's not literal or linear, it's pretty digitalized. My supposition is that the audience will come into a theater and just leave their head. It'll go directly from the stage to their gut, to their muscles, to their nerves, and out their eyeballs, and that they will have had an experience. That's my goal, that this is a participatory thing, if I make it extreme enough. But it's all about the forces and being willing not to just demonstrate the skill you've gained in a ballet class on stage. So, first of all, your food's getting cold. Okay, no, no, Do you want to eat? <laughs> Going then to ballet, because in your book, you are very hard on that structure and how it came up through the French courts and with royalty and class. Mm -hmm. And you address class issues mm -hmm. with your years now of being in the world of movement and having started in dance. And you really do make a distinction and have fought against certain definitions of your work that it not be contained only in that world and only be seen in worlds where people have high ticket prices and would have to have been exposed to certain things to even know about it right in the first mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. and so in Williamsburg where you have the studio the doors are open the, the gates are rolled up you have open rehearsals so going back to ballet for a moment and to the earlier years when you were exposed to dance what is it that you were pushing against because you know you write about the costume the pink tutus, the, that you didn't respond to it as, as a woman, as a person. So to take us there for a moment so that then I'm going to pick up with what you were saying about these experiences that you're wanting to bring on with your audience to be shared. Right. I mean, I think I noticed the class issues in modern dance and ballet because I came from a working class background. When my um, day was done and I'd have taken two ballet classes or one ballet and one modern and I'd gone to rehearsal, the evening I was on my way to my cooking job. I cooked in restaurants for many years, and I noticed many of my cohorts, my friend dancers, were not going to any job. They were just going out, having dinner or whatever. I realized right away that I didn't want to make a big deal of the fact that I had to earn money to, to support this activity of dancing or choreography for me. And I passed as a person who was not from the working class. I learned how to pass because I actually believe even if you go to a philanthropist, if you go and you fundraise, which a choreographer has to do, that they really looked at your thread count. I mean. Many people might disagree with me, but I believe that people with money give money away. Nobody really wants to give money to a poor person. I just didn't really analyze this in my early years, and really throughout my 40s, I just started to collect information about it. I noticed who was in my audience. You know, I noticed they were mostly white, and I noticed they were middle, upper class, or upper class people. So I am interested in an action form that can reach the masses. And I really believe that action can be a, a panacea to heal sadness and incur joy. You know, just 
even in a flash. You don't have to watch a whole show. So I think that the class thing in the arts in general, certainly in um, dance in particular, because movement is everyone's playground. And I just am very interested in bringing it back to the people. And speaking of the people and everyday movements, I mean, outside the windows of this restaurant right now, we have construction going on and the laying down of cement. And you talk about your father being a mason and the things he taught you, pushing your body to certain extremes as a little girl. Can you share about the carrying of the heavy water, the holding up a ceiling for hours, the the things that became these perhaps accidental lessons of your childhood, I'm not sure, but watching your father labor and people around you in your neighborhood labor and how that also has influenced what you're sharing with us today in terms of these actions. Yes, I mean, I think growing up in a working class family and, you know, when I say working for an hourly wage, I mean, you know, you're making $10 an hour. You don't really have a salary. So if the wintertime comes and the the job is closed down because of the snow, you're not getting paid, you know. And so I I think that watching the nervousness about money was really, it really influenced me. Listening to the conversation at the dinner table, which I think has an enormous amount to do with how kids are affected in their futures. If it's all about, you know, grunting and groaning about what the hell, what the hell kind of jobber is that guy? He can't lift a stone to help me up the ladder. You know, it's just that kind of complaining. And I would go on the job with him. I mean, he built both our houses, both my house in Penfield, New York, which we lived in, and the cottage up on Lake Ontario. He was extremely resourceful and industrious, and he built it one piece at a time with leftover materials from the job, which I'm sure was not totally legal. You know, I guess he stole our houses somehow, which was pretty funny. In that process, I helped him build our houses. And, you know, sometimes he'd say, you know, I ran out of nails, hold up this ceiling for me, I'll be right back, you know. And I'd stand on a ladder and hold up the ceiling. The time that you write about then in the book, where he asks you to hold up the ceiling, this sheetrock, this heavy sheetrock. And how old are you? I think I'm probably eight or 10, something like that. I'm a kid, you know, and I'm pretty scrawny. I was really, really a scrawny kid, a very picky eater, which of course is not popular in a working class family. (laughs) So you'd end up sitting at the table at night if you didn't eat every pea for hours and hours. So yeah, yeah, it was a ceiling he was putting up at the cottage on Lake Ontario and he went away. Then, you know, really minutes and minutes and minutes passed, hours passed. And he, I was thinking, he's at the bar, that's where he is, you know, and then he did finally come back and I was still there because I was not one going to disappoint him. Even though at that point in my life I knew it was futile to impress him, he wasn't going to be impressed. He just sort of looked at me and wondered, what the heck are you doing up there? There was something deep that happened just by feeling my body capable of that type of challenge, even though he didn't specifically give me a challenge. I don't know what he was thinking. But for me, I was doing something. And it it really influenced, I think, my choices physically as, as I grew into becoming a choreographer. In what kind of way, what happened with your body in the book, you also describe another time when you were a child of carrying heavy buckets of water again to help on the job, to help your dad, and pushing your body. Is it that you learn something from going beyond your imagined capability? And the work that you've been sharing with us for so many years is very much about continuing to push past these thought of boundaries. 
Yes, I really think that if you do um, moves within your comfort zone, you're going to probably, more than likely, repeat yourself on some level. And this is probably true, you know, with a writer facing a blank page. And it, there has to be some structure in place to force you out of your comfort zone, however you, you define that as being a comfort zone. And I think that for me, it usually initially involves discomfort physically. Some people would call it pain, but we don't use the word pain. We say another rather interesting foreign sensation. And I think those times in my youth, I was, one, I realized it really, really seemed to hurt for those first few moments of carrying the pails of water and holding the, holding the ceiling up, for instance. But as I pushed through the pain, other things opened up, and I kept having eureka moments of my my stamina, you know, and that I, I, I was able to do more than I thought. And I used this, I think, as a methodology for my choreography and my questioning process was, well, what can't I do? What do I think I can't do? And therefore, how can I solve that dilemma and just do it and, and then discover, you know, new crevasses of physical knowledge or new territories or new geographies? I mean, I think that when you face, your, you know, breaking out of your comfort zone and you face issues of endurance, you find new information, new vocabulary. I've, I've always found that to be true in terms of working with the human body physically in time and space. And what would you say your early influences then were the beginnings of dance for you that were the, aha, okay, now, now I see the questions I have and, and that this is going to be how I spend my life. I don't think I was very organized about it. I was pretty clear that what I was interested in was movement early, early on. And so there were people like Evil Knievel and the Niagara Barrel, Daredevils, a lot of Daredevils. The woman with her cat. Annie Edson Taylor. You know, a lot <laughs> of the Daredevils would do a test run with some small animal, you know, and, and her cat actually died. But oh. then she went ahead and did it. She went ahead and did it anyway, and she survived. And I think that many people reinvented a barrel. You know, some people made it out of tire tubes, and some people made it out of plastic. But um, many of them died. Many of them perished. But they were doing it at that time to try and become a sideshow act because it was a horrible fiscal time. The early, I think Annie Edson Taylor did it in 1903. And um, I was hearing these stories because we lived very close to Niagara. And then there was Evil Knievel, and there were the slapstick artists, like the Three Stooges, Buster Keaton, um, Jackie Gleason. You know, and I watched how they moved. And I was Charlie Chaplin. And I was, I was thinking, that is cool. You know, that is cool. And I thought it was hysterical when one of them would put a two-by-four on their shoulder and turn around and smack somebody in the head. I mean, there was just something about the, the construction of those seemingly unplanned physical moments that brought true joy to me and thousands of others. And I wanted to collect anthropologically emotions I saw that were real in the world and would have content to a wide swatch of human beings. Like they'd say, I remember that, I remember that. I'm gonna, so are these points of content physically? Maybe. You know, these aren't necessarily contents I've invented. But by stringing them together, I'm trying to create a panoply of information that is our world, that is the United States, that is the experience, the physical experience of human beings. And your book is entitled How to Become an Extreme Action Hero. It's not only an action hero, but an extreme one. And I'm interested because you write about in your book, I mean, the origins being, as you, you say, grubby. And you talk about a fly in a mason jar and, and a moment where in watching this fly, you begin to ask questions. 
of how is this movement within this jar for this fly possible turning without bouncing off the edges of the glass and and a certain kind of motion. Yes, and, and I think that if you believe that uh, movement has the capacity to tell a story or to represent a relationship or um, to represent emotions, if you believe that, then, uh, you know, then representation will be one of your um, modes, of, modes of operation, your choices. I do not believe that. I've never seen a dance, a story ballet tell that I think, you know, if you landed from Mars and walked into Sleeping Beauty, you wouldn't know what the heck the story was about. It is not clear unless you already know the story. And so what's the point? I think movement does itself best. So it is this thisness of the moment of action that is what action is really about. I'm, I'm completely convinced of this. And, you know, the, the, the vibrancy of all the extreme sports that are capturing the um, imagination of the world at large, I think, proves that people are just obsessed with watching, um, you know, humans do moves uh, in whatever manner, rather than tell stories with moves. Uh-oh. Now, why is that happening? A little construction happening. Sounds like it's happening in the restaurant, but it's really outside. Well, we'll have a bite of food. So you just said, by doing the performances, is that what you're saying? By doing dance, by making this work, you, you said you're not feeding people, you're not... We're not building buildings, we're not feeding people. We're doing, you know, relatively useless things. So I think, you know, I have to rationalize what good for humanity will the arts be? What will they, what will they provoke in the human spirit? I, I really believe you can't set beauty against bread. You know, bread and beauty are both absolutely necessary for the future health of the people on earth. What you're talking about is really interesting because as a viewer of action, and I'm not sure, I start to suspect that audiences are not going to any longer be willing to sit in the dark, be good, well-behaved, quiet, and watch somebody else do stuff. We're even starting things like Slam Inclusive, and my garage is called Slam Streb Lab for Action Mechanics in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And at the end of the Saturday night show, if you spend five bucks extra, you get to do some of the moves. And we're just experimenting with, is this true, or are we just inventing the idea? Can there be such a thing as pop action, which is the name of my technique, pop action karaoke? It's not singing. <laughs> it's not singing, but it's moving, that kind of thing. But I think that the visceral quality of our action, the extremeness of it, seeps into people's souls and spirits and bodies and minds in a completely unique way, depending on each person's history with movement and their relationship to movement. An artist can't really control what each audience member might get out of what they're organizing and presenting on stage. And what's the reason that you did open the doors of your space in Williamsburg? What year was that that you got your space? Uh, 2003. There was a shift, wasn't there, within your company and, and how you wanted to share the work with community and an idea of what that might be, a sort of participation in a different kind of way? And what was the reason for that? I felt that the, that the responsibility um, on each artist to figure out perhaps along with the presenters and the philanthropists and the funders and the theaters to figure out on some level uh, what their responsibility, what their civic duty might be in terms of gathering their own audience together. And, and the other question I had was not so altruistic really, it was have I made anything in the last 20 years that has any relevance to people just wandering by my garage on the street? And, and we sort of charted out in Williamsburg a 10-block radius and thought that the size of my garage, 100 feet by 50 feet by 30 feet high, 
could maybe affect a 10-block radius. And we set about trying to contend with how many kind of a, a type of viral infection, like a two, you know, taking over the neighborhood two minds at a time with action. And would it provoke curiosity? Rather than saying, you know, we're going to, this is more about attraction, not promotion. Could we, just by having them walk by the front of the garage, provoke their curiosity enough to walk in? And it started with eight kids. We have kids action. And kids, who, who moves more extremely than kids? And now we have over 300, around 400 kids a week come in. And then their parents. And then the audience members. And we have a flying trapeze industry. So with these three forms, pop action, kids action, trapeze arts, and the rental program, which are all the new aerialists, we have attracted a series of tribes into SLAM that we are learning from and want to participate in the concept of extreme action. I'm wondering if you can read this paragraph from your book. It's towards the end, although it is definitely not the end because the following chapter begins with the real move. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's here. And also, please, if you want to share anything with us from the book, that you'd like us to hear, that would be great as well. Okay, this is the last paragraph in the penultimate chapter of the book, which is a chapter on motion. I believe motion and motion events can be powerful signifiers and when accurate enough can operate as an allegory to remind people of experiences they have had or those they remember happening to others. These holy moves have been encrypted into the bodies of every human, no matter how rich or poor, active or passive. Maybe these archetypes function like smells, like the smell of cut grass in early spring, or your mother's perfume, or pine needles around the holidays. I am continually searching for these moments in time and space and body. To ask you about the dedication, which is to your mother, who adopted you from foster care, yeah. two years old. So the book is for Carolyn Elliott Gale. Why that dedication and how does that connect to where you are right now making the work that you do? Well, my mother was really, when we first met, it was this electric charge. She was not just my savior, you know, in a lot of ways she was, but we were soul partners. Just, just by the luck of the draw, we just completely adored each other and she was the one that, you know, would repeat over and over again, you know, your college material. No one in my family had ever gone to college. And you're, you're capable of doing whatever it is you set your mind to do. She took me to art classes, you know, every week from the age of 8 to 13. I was studying drawing and painting. She took me skiing every weekend. She got me skis. She completely participated in my curiosity about action with the hugest heart. And I think that I certainly wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for her just blanket belief in me and my capabilities. And for you as a woman, you talk about pushing through boundaries of taking chances and how you feel that that can impact women in general even. You do talk about that, and I think it also precedes you getting on your 350 Honda motorcycle and crossing the country? Well, one, I really do think that um, when you're watching a ballet performance, the energy that you watch it with is one that clearly I could never do that. I mean, that's the message of ballet. The whole audience knows what they're watching, hugely skilled and trained bodies. It's not meant for popular use. Um, as you mentioned a little earlier, when you're watching or an audience is watching Streb Pop Action, you get the feeling, I, I, I could do this. You know, I couldn't probably fall from 30 feet or dive through glass.
But there's parts of this, I feel, in my body are possible for me to do and participate in. And that's why we think it's such a populist technique. And that's why I think, that's what I think movement could possibly do best, that sort of idea. In terms of being a female doing this work, I think that the dance world, I think, would have had a lot less difficulty accepting it as quote-unquote dance if I were a guy doing it. And the, and the vocabulary and the adjectives that were assigned to my practice wouldn't have been masochistic, sadistic, brutal, vicious, um, blah, blah, blah. They probably would have been playful, rambunctious, athletic, you know. And I'm not saying that everyone sees Streb work as that, but I think there was a certain upset that a female would smack her body around in that way. One of the stories I tell in the book is arriving in San Francisco, you know, having driven across the country on my motorcycle with no money because my dad, my mother was deceased and my dad just wasn't going to give me any money. And I had maybe, by the time I got there, I really had under $100. And it was this lesson about figuring out, uh uh-oh, you know, how am I going to solve day one? And then when I came to New York, I had a little more money, but it was probably equivalent given it was a bigger city and more expensive because I had sold my motorcycle and had about $400. But I started from scratch here as well. And I really think there's something about not phoning home. And I didn't have anyone to phone. So I was lucky, and mostly, of course, parents wouldn't let their kids go off into the wilderness without any money. But I ended up feeling it was an enormous privilege to have the opportunity twice in my life as a young girl, a young woman, to know that I could make do in a city and figure out how to get you know, a leg up on my own and decide what was it I wanted to study, where did I want to live, and then how can I achieve that, given my very, very, very spare means? From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. To find out more about SLAM, you can go to streb.org. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Well, I'm John Bachman. I've uh, been helping with music sale. We've got a lot of good stuff this year, some great old stereo equipment, turntables, good treasures. Just look for bargains. There's a ton of great stuff here. The main records are great, some really, really nice condition stuff. Get here on the early side so you can join the fray and have fun looking at records. The WJFF Music Sale. Doors open at 11, sale goes till 3, this 